From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the deaths of people on a train in Texas. Then India, where the main opposition leader has been barred from parliament. Sylvia Pajoli looks back on more than 40 years of reporting around the world in a signature style. It's an ingrained habit now. There will be several stories that I will still be very curious to follow, but I hope after a while I I start branching out and do some other things too. A new novel, The Great Reclamation on the Cost of Modern Singapore, and Jason Siegel's new series about therapists who need to talk to someone. You have no idea what your therapist is going through when they go back home. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, March 25th, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In Mississippi, workers are using heavy equipment to clear roads of rubble left behind by powerful storms that are believed to have spun off tornadoes. The Mississippi Emergency Management Agency now says at least 23 people are reported dead. Dozens are injured and four are missing. The Trail of Destruction spans more than 100 miles. The Sharkey County seat of Rolling Fork is reported to be leveled. Todd Terrell is the president of the volunteer rescue organization, the United Cajun Navy. He says 17 volunteers from the group are in Rolling Fork. We knew that it was going to be bad in that area. But nobody can prepare, can prepare for this total devastation. Mississippi State Police also warning people to stay away from Silver City, northeast of Jackson, to allow searchers to look for survivors. Rescuers in Pennsylvania searching for nine people who remain missing following an explosion at a chocolate factory. The explosion happened at a factory in West Reading. At least two people are confirmed dead. Federal investigators have been called in after 15 undocumented immigrants were found suffocating in a train car in South Texas. Uvalde police say two people were pronounced dead on the scene and 10 were taken to area hospitals. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports. Uvalde police said they were alerted by a 911 call and then notified Border Patrol agents who searched the train about three miles east of nearby Canipa. Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin said the train was sitting in the afternoon sun for more than three hours. Union Pacific Railroad, which operates the line where the migrants were found, is leading the investigation into what happened on the train. A Homeland Security Investigation Unit from Immigration and Customs Enforcement said it was looking into the possibility of human smuggling, but wouldn't provide any more details. The segment of Highway 90 between the border town of Del Rio and San Antonio has become a major route for human smuggling. Last June, in San Antonio, 53 migrants were found dead in a tractor trailer. I'm Joey Palacios in Canipa. The union that represents support staff in Los Angeles schools has reached a tentative deal following a strike that shut down the nation's second largest school district. From member station LAist, Mariana Dale reports. Service Employees International Union Local 99 includes Los Angeles Unified School District bus drivers, cafeteria workers, and classroom assistants. The union says the new contract will raise the average salary of union school staff to $33,000 a year. Max Arias is the executive director for SAIU's Local 99. We cannot continue to rely on people on the workforce that is basically living in poverty and has to work three jobs to do this work of educating our children. The contract also includes health insurance for part-time union workers and their families. Union members must vote to finalize the agreement. For NPR News, I'm Mariana Dale. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts housing agencies are asking state lawmakers to extend an eviction prevention policy that began in the pandemic. It expires this coming Friday. New England Public Media's Jill Kaufman reports. The policy requires eviction cases to be paused when a tenant has an application for rental aid in process. That includes money from the Residential Assistance for Families in Transition program, or RAFT. Keith Ferry is the executive director of the housing agency Wayfinders in Springfield. He says every day their lobby is filled with people asking for help. The applications are complicated, he says, but there is money available, and the moratorium policy buys people time to prevent an eviction. It's concerning that if there is not coordination between the courts and understanding where these applications are in a way that is working toward a goal of housing security and stability, uh, that we could be facing some dire situations. Housing agencies are asking for an extension of the state eviction moratorium through July 2024. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. A Boston school bus driver in his 70s says he was punched in the face by a parent. The Boston Herald reports that this past Monday, a first grader at a Mattapan Elementary School told her parents that the bus driver had pushed her The driver told police he had put his hand out to catch her from falling after a stop. The next day, a man boarded the bus and punched the driver in the face. Other students identified him as a parent. The bus driver was hospitalized, and police are investigating. If your driving route includes Logan Airport today, then allow for a longer trip. The Sumner Tunnel closed last night at 11 p.m. and won't open until Monday at 5 a.m. The closure accommodates work crews making upgrades to the aging structure. It is 38 degrees in Boston, some rain around today, a chance of some snow mixing with rain, highs in the low 40s. Rain tonight and then tomorrow a cloudy start, becoming sunny, breezy on Sunday, highs in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. There have been deadly tornadoes overnight in Mississippi. We have more on that elsewhere on our program and right now at NPR.org. First police in Uvalde, Texas, say two people have died. Ten more are in hospitals after being found suffocating in a shipping container nearby. And all 15 people were in that container. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios joins us now from San Antonio. Joey, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. What have you learned so far? So this happened along Highway 90. It's a major transportation corridor between the border city of Del Rio and San Antonio. The incident was reported about 11 miles away from Uvalde, near the small town of Canipa. It started with a 911 call to Uvalde police, and they relayed the information to Border Patrol, which searched the train and found 15 people suffocating in a shipping container. Five survivors were taken to hospitals around the Uvalde area and five to San Antonio. What's been learned about the people in that shipping container? Police said they're all undocumented immigrants. We reached out to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, who said they were looking into it as a possible human smuggling incident. Police say Union Pacific Railroad is leading the investigation into what happened on the train. 
Uvalde Police and Border Patrol were two of the main law enforcement organizations involved in this response. It's hard not to point out that they were two of the main groups of officers responsible for the botched response to the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde last May. This is obviously a different story about a year later, and it's too early to analyze law enforcement's response to this incident. But it's worth noting this area, the Highway 90 corridor, has extremely heavy law enforcement presence that's been doing more immigration enforcement in recent years. What does that immigration enforcement look like where you are, Joy? This Highway 90 corridor is actually the epicenter of Governor Greg Abbott's controversial Operation Lone Star, which uses the Texas Department of Public Safety and the National Guard to arrest migrants on trespassing charges. And anyone who lives along Highway 90 has become accustomed to the term bailouts. That's when a law enforcement officer pursues a vehicle carrying migrants, and the driver crashes the car intentionally, and the occupants jump out and try to escape. According to the Texas Civil Rights Project, these bailouts have led to more than 30 migrant deaths since the start of Operation Lone Star in 2021. Uvalde's mayor, Don McLaughlin, said law enforcement in the area has dealt with immigration-related pursuits regularly. We deal with this every day down here. Not deaths every day, but we're dealing with immigrants every day, seven days a week. But Joey, this incident does stand out. Two people in that shipping container have died. You have covered several tragedies that stem from migration through the area. Yeah, it was in June of last year when 53 migrants were found dead inside a tractor trailer in San Antonio. The victims were from Mexico, Central America, and, you know, actually the last time you and I spoke was about this incident. In 2017, 10 migrants were found dead in a tractor trailer in a Walmart parking lot also here in San Antonio. After this incident, Republicans have called for harder-line immigration policies, and Democrats have called for an easier legal pathway to citizenship and entry so people don't have to undertake such a dangerous journey. Meanwhile, people from all over the world are making their way to the U.S.-Mexico border in search of a better life in large numbers, and this area will continue to feel the stress of it. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. It's the indictment that didn't or maybe hasn't yet. The week began with Donald Trump saying he would be arrested as part of the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into hush money to pay Stormy Daniels. It ended with Trump uncuffed on the road in Waco. NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Uh, Donald Trump called for protests. The New York Times said he was ready for a spectacle. But what happened? A spectacle happened. It just wasn't real. It was virtual, the product of computer-generated deep fakes people saw on social media. You know, this is the age we live in, Scott, and in some ways it's ideally suited to Trump. A large part of his strategy has been to deny or question what is reported and create doubt as to what's fact and what's fiction. Uh, that has been his style as a candidate and as a president, and it's now his strategy as a legal defendant, who is also a candidate again. And at the same time, we have Trump saying in the real world that if he is indicted, there will be, quote, death and destruction, unquote. So there we have a different question. Does that in itself constitute an incitement of violence mm. or a threat against legal authority? We will see if indeed Trump is indicted in the real world. So far, Republicans have more or less rallied around the former president, but a muted rally? Well, it may not have been as full-throated as he would like, 
But we do expect some really rousing reaction in Waco, Texas today. Trump is holding a rally there to officially open his 2024 campaign. It's something of a do-over because he also launched that campaign last year at Mar-a-Lago. So far, Trump's defense in all of his legal travails has been to play the victim, complain about law enforcement, call it all a political prosecution and a witch hunt. If Trump is indicted, there will be courtroom proceedings and we will find out what law enforcement has on him. Uh, If anything, saying anything else at this point is mere speculation and premature. But we should mention that a federal judge in Washington this week rejected the claim of executive privilege for Trump's inner circle. Uh, That means former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others may have to testify about the January 6th riot that sacked the Capitol. Uh, We do expect the judge's order to be appealed. President Biden celebrated 13 years uh, since the signing of the Affordable Care Act this week. Uh, Kind of an odd-numbered anniversary, but it allowed him to draw a distinction between his party and congressional Republicans as debt ceiling negotiations continue, what uh, would Republicans like? Well, you know, if you were around in March of 2010, you remember Biden's comment about the Affordable Care Act uh, being a big deal. I remember and, it. We just can't quote it. Yes. And being, being <laughs> he was introducing Obama and caught on a hot mic. Uh, and it has been a big deal, uh, the signature achievement of the Obama-Biden administration and a target for Republicans ever since. Uh, as for the new budget negotiations, uh, it was signaled this week that the House Republicans want deep spending cuts, but will not hold out for a plan to balance the budget. We shall see. If they were to hold out, though, it would probably mean a stalemate and very possibly a default on U.S. debt this summer, which would be the first in our history. Well, this wasn't part of the budget wrangling, but I, I'd like to get to hear what you have to say about the Parents' Bill of Rights that passed the House. It was a big feature of last fall's elections, the images of angry or frightened parents protesting at school board meetings. And this has to do with their concerns about public schools using their tax dollars to teach their kids liberal values, particularly on race and gender and sex. House Republicans know this bill has probably no chance really in the Senate, but this is very much a case of literal virtue signaling. It's all about that base. The Republican candidates want to court Certain voters, they know they need to court to win. Meanwhile, that other chamber, the Senate, is not what we'd call a full house yet, is it? It could be soon. Well, we expect Mitch McConnell to return. Uh, he's 81. He's been out since he had a fall, suffered a concussion. His staff says he'll be back. Uh, also, the new senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, is said to be recovering from an episode of depression. And another Democrat, Diane Feinstein, is expected back soon from her treatment for shingles. So not a full roster we've seen recently for either party in the Senate, but that should change soon. Ron Elding, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Authoritarian rulers can't take a joke, and they see jokes everywhere. The film Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey has been pulled from theaters in Hong Kong and Macau for technical reasons, but the film has reportedly already been shown on thousands of cinema screens around the world without any technical problems, like those mentioned by Chinese officials. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey takes A.A. Milne's endearing storybook characters and turns them into murderous revenge fiends. The filmmakers can do this because the book's copyright expired and it's now in the public domain. I don't think I'd want to see this film if it was the only one being shown on a 19-hour flight and all I had to read was the air sickness bag. But China watchers speculate the film isn't being suppressed over matters of taste. It's political censorship. According to reports, some in China thought President Xi Jinping 
resembled Winnie the Pooh in a 2013 photo of him walking alongside President Barack Obama. President Obama was supposed to be Tigger. I think I can see it, though that just might be the power of suggestion. The next year, a photo of Xi shaking hands with Japan's prime minister evoked an image of Pooh and Eeyore, the eternally glum donkey. Memes flew again. The Chinese authorities' response was to ban most images of Pooh. This made the silly old bear into a resistance icon. Americans can freely imitate, mock, and ridicule public figures on Twitter, television, TikTok, online, on stage, and in Times Square if they want. But in tyrannies, protesters have to keep their symbols cryptic for their own survival. As Winnie the Pooh himself once observed, when you go after honey, the great thing is not to let the bees know you're coming. Some protesters in Russia have gathered waving toilet brushes. What's subversive about a toilet brush? The upraised scrubbers might remind Russians of the ones in the bathrooms of Vladimir Putin's Black Sea Palazzo, which reportedly cost $619 apiece. It's a way of saying Vladimir Putin spends as much on a toilet brush as most of us earn in a month. Protesters in China have held aloft blank sheets of paper to decry government lockdowns and censorship. It's as if to taunt authorities, are you really going to arrest someone for saying nothing? But despots don't see the joke in blank sheets of paper, toilet brushes, or bears of very little brain. Tyrancy only threats to their power. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about five minutes, a fond farewell from an icon. NPR's correspondent in Rome is retiring. You'll get a conversation with Sylvia Pajoli. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Jewish Arts Collaborative. Jewish culture is more than matzo balls. And J-Arts is here to explore with you. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Officials in Mississippi say at least 23 people are dead and dozens injured following last night's powerful storms that are believed to have spun off at least one tornado. The state's emergency management agency says a trail of damage spans more than 100 miles. Thousands are without power. Intel co-founder Gordon Moore has died. He was 94. The company says Moore died at his home in Hawaii. He was a pioneer of the semiconductor industry known for Moore's Law, which predicted a steady rise in computer processing power. And President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are spending the weekend at their home in Wilmington, Delaware, following their trip to Canada. The two were guests of honor at a state dinner in Ottawa last night. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. India's parliament has disqualified a top opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, is the descendant of a political dynasty that once dominated Indian politics. His ouster from Parliament complicates his ability to challenge Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who's running for re-election next year. NPR's Lauren Freyer joins us from our bureau in Mumbai. Lauren, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. And why has this man with such a famous name been kicked out of Parliament? The legal answer is that he was convicted of criminal defamation for insulting the prime minister. He's been sentenced to two years in prison. That happens to be the minimum sentence that dispars him from holding office. The political answer is that he was probably the most prominent figure challenging Modi on the national stage ahead of next year's elections. Parliament is dominated by Modi's Bhartiya Janata Party, the BJP, and it didn't want to take any chances. It wanted to eliminate any electoral threat. What did Mr. Gandhi say about the prime minister that brought defamation charges? He compared the prime minister and others with the Modi name to thieves. And this was at an election rally in 2019. Sounds very innocuous compared to things you hear from politicians here and in other countries. But an official from Modi's party sued. A court in Modi's home state convicted Rahul Gandhi. I have to say, in India, as you know, charges like this fly daily. Figures from many different parties regularly abuse the courts to prosecute political grudges. Almost half of the Indian parliament has criminal charges pending. Gandhi is unlikely to do time. His sentence has been suspended for at least 30 days. He's out on bail. He's appealing. But what is unusual is to have him disqualified from politics altogether. Yeah. What does this mean for Rahul Gandhi's political future with elections coming so soon? So Gandhi held a news conference sounding very defiant, refusing to apologize. He actually said the prime minister is scared of him. But unless his conviction is overturned by higher courts, he cannot face Modi in next year's election. Rahul Gandhi, you mentioned this political dynasty. His father, his grandmother, his great-grandfather were all prime ministers of India. And their party, the Indian National Congress, was the party of Mahatma Gandhi, though they're not related, same name, different lineage. But it's a center-left party that was sort of the product of the Indian freedom struggle, calls itself the party of inclusion, of minority rights, a vision of India as diverse and secular. And that vision has been totally eclipsed by Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalists, who dominate politics at the national level, at least. They have tremendous influence over the courts, over the legislature, the media, and they've managed to get that influence through legal democratic means. Modi has a very high approval ratings, upwards of 70%. And Gandhi hasn't been able to erode that much. And so this shows that Modi's party is actually willing to go after even a quite weak opponent. Do Indians seem to be upset? 
Modi supporters say this shows nobody's above the law, but his critics say his party is being one opposition politician called it vindictive and shameful. And some say democracy is in danger in what is still hopefully the world's biggest democracy. And Pierce Lauren Freire in Mumbai, thanks so much. You're welcome. PhD candidate Crystal Owens has undertaken a solemn and significant study as part of her mechanical engineering work at MIT. Luckily, we had a machine that did the testing, so I didn't have to stand there for five minutes slowly twisting an Oreo. The question, how to best open a cream-filled cookie? You can listen Sunday morning on Weekend Edition, this week with Mild Sparks. Tune in on your phone or computer, or just turn on the radio. Don't forget the milk. The past 41 years, a lot of NPR listeners have thought of Italy as the home of Da Vinci, the Vespa, the Colosseum, Fettuccine El Pomodoro, and Poggioli, Silvia Poggioli. While her name has become synonymous with Rome, she's also taken us around the world to Prague's Velvet Revolution, the Balkans, Myanmar, and Iraq. Silvia has become a storied foreign correspondent in that time, but now she says it's time to step back from NPR's microphone. She joins us now, of course, from Rome. Sylvia, always a delight to talk to you. Thanks for making time for us now. Oh, thank you, Scott, for having me. It's really an honor. You were actually born in Providence, Rhode Island. What brought you to Italy, and why'd you stay? Actually, I was born there, but I didn't. Uh, when I was very young, my parents moved to uh, Massachusetts, and I grew up there. And then after college, I came to Rome on a, on a Fulbright started doing some odd jobs and stuff, and I stayed. And I became a journalist, and um, that's about it. <laughs> you know, there's so many memorable stories of the thousands you've done over the years, and we wanted to look back at a couple. Uh, we both covered the war in Bosnia. 1994, you visited uh, Mostar. You were on the Muslim side shortly after a 10-month-long siege there by ethno-Croatians. Late in the afternoon of November 9th, the Bosnian Croats fired a final mortar shell against the bridge, and the last piece of ancient stone masonry crashed into the river rapids below. Their purpose achieved, the attackers let off a round of celebratory gunshots. The final insult came when Bosnian Croat officials said they would build another bridge, more beautiful and more ancient. Sylvia, what were you suggesting there for us that uh, that touched you in that conflict? Well, the total senselessness. Uh, Mostar had been probably the center of some of the most beautiful Ottoman Balkan architecture. The bridge I, I, I talked about was the famous Stadi Mos, this one arched, beautiful bridge over the Naretva River. And it was, you know, the symbol of the many, many centuries of Ottoman rule of Muslim culture and art and architecture in the city. And destroying it was one of the many very senseless acts of uh, destruction in the Balkan Wars the, that led to the, the whole breakup of Yugoslavia. And there was this absurd statement saying that we will build it uh, more beautiful and older, gave you a sense of the complete madness of that war. Yeah. Let's ask you about another different kind of clip. This is from Parma, Italy in 2000. 
The male-only Club 27 is the most exclusive of Verdi's fan clubs. Each lifetime member is given the name of one of his 27 operas, and that's how they introduce themselves. Rigoletto senza gomma. Don Carlo. I Vespi Siciliani. Falstaff. Macbeth. Giovanna d'Arco. Otello. Hernani. None of them are professional musicians. There are a few retired bank tellers. One is a sewing machine repairman. Another is a journalist. My gosh, Sylvia, how'd you ever hear about this club? Oh, well, it's a very exclusive club. It's famous, um, the Club 27. And um, what's very interesting is that these gentlemen would not tell me their names. In fact, one of them, uh, I was with a friend who recognized one of them, and he said he was a very famous soccer referee. But anyways, their their love of opera is something uh, contagious. It's uh, The people of Parma are just fanatic opera lovers. They grow up with it. Obviously, in the time of Verdi, who was the favorite son of Parma, people cheered composers and singers the way today they're fans of soccer. The music is really in, in the veins of this people. What do you think you've enjoyed most about this incredible life in which you've given so much to so many people and learned so much and shared it? All the people, not the famous ones, but the, just the average people that we meet. One of the high points of the stories that I covered was certainly the, the Velvet Revolution in, in Prague. The way they brought down that government was done with such incredible people power. It was just such a happy time. And it was all directed by Václav Havel inside this famous theater called Lanterna Magica in Prague. And he was like, on the stage, he would give these the press conferences for the, for the international media as if he was directing a magnificent theatrical production. Yeah. I want to ask you about the slow food movement. After the first, I guess the first McDonald's opened in Rome, 2004, slow food fair that took place in Turin. Let's listen. One of the thousands of products saved from oblivion is the Cornish salt pilchard, a large sardine-like fish that has been shipped to Italy at least since the year 1555. Cheap and with a long shelf life, for centuries it was a staple for Catholics during Lent. Nick Howell, who runs the only remaining pilchard salt plant in Cornwall, says it's still customary for his last four Protestant fishermen to drink a toast to the Pope every year. Here's a health to the Pope, and may he repent and lengthen by six months the term of his Lent. It's always declared betwixt the two poles, there's nothing like pilchards for saving us souls. <laughs> oh, yeah. mercy. Did you taste the fish? Um, I did indeed. Uh, and they're, they're like big, saltier sardines. I like them. You have covered three pontiffs, uh, from John Paul II to... Pope Francis, and of course in 2013, Pope Benedict resigned, a decision which no pope had made for centuries. What do you remember about covering the Vatican, the papacy, the crowds, the masses? Oh, it's it's over. I mean, there's so much. Um, certainly under John Paul II, you know, his, this was the pope, this is the, the traveling pope, the first uh, non-Italian pope, certainly in centuries. And uh, he was, you know, John Paul superstar. Of course, under his papacy, you know, there was a sort of, you know, dogmatic crackdown. And uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict, was in a way, you know, the, the theological watchdog. There was a, really a huge crackdown on uh, dissident uh, theologians, and it was very strict. And uh, 
the papacy of Benedict was unexciting in some ways after certainly John Paul, and it was tormented by many scandals in the end of certainly the the leak scandal that shed light on a lot of sort of shady dealings inside the Vatican. But it was the Benedict himself proved to have made so many mistakes. And now we have the first pope from the global south, and he is certainly chartering a very new path, and uh, we'll see... You know, there's always this tale that they say here in Rome when there's the death of a pope that there's a pendulum and it goes from a progressive pope to a conservative pope. It hasn't always happened that way, but often it does. So we don't know whether the reforms introduced by Francis will last. Depends on how long this papacy lasts. Yeah. Refugees have become an enormous part of the story of Italy over the past uh, couple of decades. And I, I wonder what stays with you about covering that story or people with whom you spoke? Well, they're probably the interviews I've done, the, the encounters I've had with refugees of all types, both in the Balkans, on the island of Lampedusa, where they arrive on rickety boats from North Africa, or also on the, on the Greek island of Lesbos. They're all survivors, those that we get to talk to, because so many of them die. Uh, the Mediterranean has been described now as the biggest cemetery in the world. Greece, Italy, and Spain are the front line because geography determines that. And the governments of these countries have been beseeching their European Union partners to try to find a Europe-wide policy of how to deal with it, how to partition them out into different countries. But there's a lot of resistance of the Northern European countries. And uh, it's the major problem facing this part of the world right now, and nobody seems to know how to deal with it. Sylvia, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you remember a song I once wrote and sung for you when you got an award in Boston? (laughs) I remember that well. Let me just... When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Pajoli. Real low point in your career? (laughs) No, 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 Scott. That's that's very moving. I really love that. Uh, Do you think you'll miss seeing... Something flash in the news and running off to get close to it? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's an ingrained habit now. There will be several stories that I will still be very curious to follow, but I hope after a while I, I start branching out and do some other things too. Thank you for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, For Scott. every story, for uh, the support you've given every colleague. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Sylvia Pajoli, I really... Could I get you to sock out for us? <laughs> this is Sylvia Pajoli in Rome. NPR's longest-serving foreign correspondent. Arrivederci, Sylvia. Arrivederci. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. An army of workers is behind every Google search you do. They're there for quality control and try to make sure your results aren't full of inaccurate or misleading links. And they are people, not artificial intelligence. Google calls them Google Raiders. But as NPR's Derek Kerr reports, they call themselves ghost workers. When Ed Stackhouse flips open his laptop every morning and logs on, he sees a list of assignments from Google. For example, he's told to examine whether the results from a YouTube search match what people could be looking for. 
and I will tick off boxes as to whether or not it's upsetting, offensive, or pornographic in nature, racy, and that sort. And that's just YouTube. Stackhouse also makes sure Google searches are authentic and that page links aren't broken. Basically, he's a content moderator. His job is to rate the quality of searches and be on the lookout for scams. Like all Google raters, Stackhouse works from home. He lives in North Carolina, but these workers are spread out around the world. They don't work directly for Google, but for contracting companies. And that is what has turned them into ghost workers, says Google raider Teresa Partain. There's a wall between us and Google. We're not actually even supposed to say Google. We're not allowed to have any contact with the people on their search and ads team who need our help. Partain and Stackhouse work for a contractor called Appen. They and all their colleagues make $15 an hour and aren't allowed to work more than 29 hours a week. If they could get just one more hour each week, then under Google policies, they say they'd qualify for benefits like health insurance and paid sick leave. The magic 30 hours a week is what we can't go past. A Google spokeswoman told NPR that subcontracting companies like Appen, quote, manage all employment terms for the raiders, including pay and benefits. Appen didn't respond to multiple requests for comment. Stackhouse has a heart condition and Partain has Parkinson's disease, so they appreciate working from home. However, health insurance is a big issue. Over the past year, Google Raiders have been building a community to advocate for better working conditions. And now, they're amping up the pressure. Dozens of Raiders and their supporters rallied at Google's sprawling California headquarters in January. They were surrounded by a network of glass-walled buildings that featured Google's colorful logo. Employees rode by on the free-for-all bicycles. A lot of contractors work for Google and its parent company, Alphabet. In total, they have around 200,000 contract workers worldwide, according to Alphabet Workers Union. That's equal to more than 50% of their workforce. Frank Arce, a union vice president for the Communications Workers of America, says Google search would be full of glitches without the raiders. Raiders are why Google search results are so good. They make sure that people like you and me get the information we need every single time. And no one working for Google should be struggling to pay their rent. A few weeks after the rally, Google and Appen answered some of the workers' demands. They raised their pay from $14.50 an hour to what raiders make now, $15 an hour. But economic storm clouds have started to gather over Silicon Valley. Google laid off about 6% of its workforce in January. Still, the company posted nearly $60 billion in net profit last year. And Stackhouse says raiders helped that profit by working on the company's two biggest moneymakers, search and advertising. We support billions of dollars of revenue, and we get paid less than your average fast food worker. Google raiders have proved their value, he says, and that gives them the confidence to ask for more change. Dara Kerr, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano is rejecting State Auditor Diana DiZaglio's request that her office conduct an audit of the legislature. The House Counsel has determined such an audit would be unconstitutional, and Mariano says the auditor's office does not have the legal authority to carry out the audit. However, DiZaglio says she's disappointed in the speaker and says she does intend to proceed with the investigation. 
This coming Monday, the Boston Marathon will unveil its new corporate sponsor. Marathon officials and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu are scheduled to make the announcement at 100 Federal Street. That is the site of Bank of America's New England headquarters. A Rhode Island state lawmaker has been cut from a House committee over remarks he made during a hearing. The Boston Globe reports that last week, Republican House member Robert Quattrochi asked a Democratic colleague who is lesbian whether she's a pedophile. In response, the Rhode Island House Speaker removed Quattrochi from the state government and elections committee. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington, March 24th through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org. And Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Boston is fortunate to have options when it comes to news sources, but local journalism is in decline. I'm Ari Shapiro. WBUR is doing everything it can to bring you meaningful, nuanced stories from greater Boston. But WBUR can't do its job without your financial support. We need every listener who can give to give a little money every month. Become a member at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. New novel opens on an astonishing scene. 1941, off the coast of Singapore, a fisherman out in waters he's navigated his whole life. And with him are his oldest son and for the first time his youngest, seven-year-old Aboon. Suddenly they feel the tidal pull of a great island where... Previously, there had only been ocean. Let's ask Rachel Hang to read from her new novel, The Great Reclamation. How then to explain this here now? Was it a mirage? But the waves proved otherwise. Pa could tell from the rocking of his boat how far they were from land, and its movement tallied with what he was seeing. For a moment, Pa had the mad thought of driving the boat straight through the shore to see if it would go right through. Rachel Hang's novel uses that view of what may rise up seemingly out of nothing to tell a tale of Aboon's future and that of Singapore under British colonial rule, Japanese occupation, self-governance, and then the rising tide of society trying to remake itself and at what cost. Rachel Hang joins us from New York. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. How much did you have to learn and know about fishing to write this novel? (laughs) Well, I researched the book for about a year before even starting to write, and learning about fishing was certainly part of the research. Um, And I actually met someone who specialized in colonial fishing practices. Um, And so he shared plenty on the type of equipment they would have, you know, what their lifestyle was like, um, and just all the little details that went into the book. Does uh, this novel owe a debt to um, Stendhal's The Red and the Black, the great French 19th century novel? 
Yes, it actually does. Um, and thank you so much for bringing that up. It's one of my favorite novels. And I, because I wanted to write a coming of age novel, I saw a kinship, you know, between Abun and the main character of the red and the black, Julien Sorel, and who is also, you know, a shy sort of bookish boy growing up in a rural area who has great ambitions for himself and his life, but is not only driven by his own ambitions, but also very much the forces outside of him, right? The political changes happening, his desire for love and connection, the ways in which he does and doesn't fit into his community. And all of that felt very appealing and sort of very relevant to Singapore and the political changes happening at that time. Tell us about the, uh, I guess they were known informally as the Ga Men in Singapore's uh, government after independence. Who were they? Yeah, so the Gamen in Singapore is sort of a, a shortened version of the word government, not exactly slang, but just the colloquial version of it. They are the local government, so the politicians who manage to sort of gain control and rise to power just as the British are leaving. They have, you know, very grand plans for Singapore, this tiny island nation. What you see in the novel is the beginning of the garments plant. So this great modernization project to lift, you know, the populace out of poverty, to raise standards of living, to urbanize and to modernize the country's infrastructure. And the great reclamation project, which yeah. the book is titled after, is part of that. So that's the land reclamation project that reshaped the southeastern coast of Singapore, in which the village Abun lives in is based. Right. Help us understand the uh, the scope of that project and what it, uh, well, what it wound up doing. Yeah. So, I mean, land reclamation, I guess it's more commonly known as landfill in the U.S. So just briefly, it's the act of filling in a water body like coastal area, marshland or lake with um, sand in order to create artificial land. And Singapore is a very small country. It's an island about a little over half the size of New York City. Um, and it's actually grown by about 25% in land mass since the 1960s through land reclamation. So the Great Land Reclamation Project was the largest initiative that happened after independence that started in the 1960s and went all the way through to the 1990s, which completely reshaped the southeastern coast of Singapore. And people may be familiar with, you know, the, the, one of the opening scenes in Crazy Rich Asians, where you have this luxury hotel, the three towers with the boat on top. And that's built on reclaimed land that was created as part of this project. And while, you know, today we see the very impressive outcomes of land reclamation, like these luxury hotels, what my book focuses on is the people, such as Abun's fishing village, you know, their homes, the ways in which that their ways of life were altered so dramatically in a very short span of time in the name of nation building and the greater good. I was very touched to read the acknowledgments and you thank your mother for many of her stories. They're at the heart of this novel? Yeah. The reason why I wanted to write this novel was, you know, the Singapore I grew up in is the one that people are familiar with, right? This sparkling modern city full of skyscrapers and highways, very urbanized. Um, but the Singapore that I would hear my mother talking about was very different. She grew up in a wooden shop house that didn't have running water. They had a tarp for a ceiling. You know, whenever it rained, it would flood and cockroaches would come in with the water. So whenever she, you know, and my other relatives would talk about this Singapore, it felt like a totally different country, but also one that existed not very long ago at all because that was her lifetime. 
And so in writing this book, I wanted to bring that Singapore to life, to explore what it must have been like, you know, for that Singapore to be your home and then see it transform so rapidly before your eyes. You know, I, Singapore is such an astonishingly diverse society, ethnic Chinese, Indian, scores of religions, if I may, amazing food. <laughs> Absolutely. But can a novelist thrive there, given the, the level of official censorship? I think there are different issues at hand for novelists. Um, maybe this applies to anyone writing about home, that for me personally, I don't think I could have written this book if I had never left Singapore. And not specifically because of censorship, but because I do think I needed to have that distance from my home in order to see certain things about it more clearly. You know, I think just take the rapid modernization, for example, when I was growing up in Singapore, I just took that as the norm, right? As you do. And then once I left, I began to see that, oh, that's a really particular and specific choice. And then you start seeing these things about other values and other choices that were made by society. And so I think all the different characters in my book have different opinions about what is happening. And no one is, you know, 100% for change and for the progress, and no one is 100% against it. I wrote it that way with all of these different perspectives because of that sense of responsibility that I have, the sense of love that I have for my home. Um, and also not knowing myself, you know, I don't have a an answer to the questions that are raised in, in the book. That's why I wrote it the way I did, with all the different characters kind of trying to work it out between them. Rachel Hang, her novel, The Great Reclamation. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. This was wonderful. Shrinking, a series on Apple TV Plus shows therapists who need help in their practice, in their lives. Jason Siegel plays Jimmy Laird, a therapist and father who can no longer communicate with his daughter or patients. He decides to take his methods in different and questionable directions, like putting a patient, a veteran struggling with violent anger, into the ring at a mixed martial arts gym. The head of Jimmy's therapy practice is displeased, to say the least. Is this going to be a fun talk? I just got off the phone with Sean's father. He said he came back from your session with a broken tooth. So not a fun talk. Not for you. And, as you may guess, the head shrink and shrinking is Harrison Ford. Jason Siegel stars and is one of the creators of Shrinking. Jason Siegel joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. What's going on with Jimmy Laird? Yeah, well, uh, you know, when we meet Jimmy in the beginning of episode one, he is just about a year out of his wife's uh, tragic death in a car accident. And... Um, has basically just been numbing himself and is in the midst of a true nervous breakdown, um, the real depths of depression, rock bottom. And none of his patients know that he himself is is in the depths of despair. How did you ever persuade Harrison Ford to do this? You know, look, here's my experience with that. There's this part that would be perfect for Harrison Ford. And so you say, you know what would be fun? Let's make an offer to Harrison Ford. And you do that with the expectation that for a week you get to tell your friends we have an offer out to Harrison Ford. <laughs> At which point he'll say no, and then you get to find the real guy, you know? Yeah. And so we offer it to Harrison Ford. And then, like, two days later, Harrison Ford says yes. And then there's this moment of, like, 
wait, Harrison Ford's going to show up? And there is total <laughs> panic and rewriting and trying to reconfigure uh, the thrust of the show because now all of a sudden you have one of the greatest actors of uh, yeah. the past century coming to be in your TV show. And Harrison Ford shows up and the first thing he does, which I think is so generous, is he breaks through the awe that he mm. knows accompanies him being Harrison Ford. And he said this thing, you know, Harrison was a carpenter and he said, all I want when someone hires me to do, to do a job is that they are happy with the house I helped build. And that's how he oh views my. acting. And I learned so much from that. Wow. I Look, I think you are a great actor. Oh, thanks. And a great comic talent. But I, Harrison Ford steals every damn scene he's in. I, I am totally comfortable with that assessment of the show. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in a lot. It's not just a cameo. Your co-creators are Bill Lawrence and Brett Goldstein, who, of course, were also part of the group that created Ted Lasso. Were you hoping for some of that feel? I am very lucky to have a passenger seat in this creator boat. Um, Bill Lawrence called me about two years ago and said uh, that he wanted to find something to do together, which is an absolutely dreamy call to get um, as an actor. When they pitched it to me, it felt right in the Venn diagram of what we each do well. This mm -hmm. idea of not being afraid of earnestness and also laughing your way through some of the hardest moments in life. I think that is how we actually experience grief a lot of the times. Sometimes it is just straight mm -hmm. up sad, but uh, real people don't try to show their feelings. They try to hide them. So a lot of times we are laughing through the hardest moments. Do you think uh, audiences are more prepared to to accept this as a premise after we've been through a pandemic and there's just been a lot more open talk about mental health and having the courage to reach out and to and to say to each other, I need help. I think there is certainly that element. And I also think that this sense of loss that Jimmy is going through is very literal within the show because he's lost his wife. But I think it is a sense of loss that we are all feeling at the moment that something was unexpectedly taken from us all of a sudden. This grief that life can change in an instant without any warning, and next thing you know, two years have gone by, and oh my gosh, what happened? I think we're all sort of feeling that. And so part of what the show does is it, it's, it's the function of therapy, it's the function of any kind of group dynamic. When all of a sudden people start saying it out loud, hey, I feel that way too, all of a sudden this gets a hell of a lot easier because you may be in the bottom of a hole, but you're in there together and you're going to hold hands and find your way out and laugh your way doing it, you know? Let me ask you about something you found unusual. In in almost any series, we're, we're going to talk our way to a little scene. Um, your character and his best friend, Brian, played by Michael Urey, so when we find out that Jimmy has been avoiding Brian since the death of his wife, and uh, Brian wants to know why. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but it's not fun to be around somebody who says everything goes my way when their wife has died. I never said everything goes your way. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> that's my thing. Then you kiss him. On the head and tell him you love him. Yeah, that's a hard uh, line to pull off, man. Michael, you already pulled that line off. When we wrote that line, 
because his his slogan, his catchphrase that he says all the time is uh, "Everything goes my way," and we had just just discussed how hard that would be to be around for someone who was going through depression. And we knew that we were going to try to pull off him saying the line, I didn't say any, everything goes your way after he says my wife died. And man, did this guy pull off that line. Michael Urie is a, is a genius. It's nice to see that kind of depiction of uh, friendship between two, two men. Uh, it's based on a real friendship from my life, that moment. I went through some tough times when I was younger, and I had a friend of mine who was completely optimistic and was not about to let me feel miserable at a moment when I needed to feel miserable. And uh, I, I sort of systematically and quietly removed him from my life. And um, a couple of years later, uh, when I was in a better spot, we tried to hang out and there was this unspoken thing in the air of why, why did you do this? Like where I was there for you. And we had a very similar discussion to what was in the show. Are therapists necessarily better in their own in-person relationships in life as anyone else? No, and I think there is a distinction between who someone is in the confines of their office and who they are when they go home. And that's one of the things our show explores is that you have no idea what your therapist is going through when they go back or anyone or anyone yeah. what, what they're going through when they go back home. Mr. Siegel, I, I, I've got to ask you a last question that I think a lot of people wonder about to this day. Are you a man or are you a Muppet? <laughs> I am a very manly Muppet. Uh, <laughs> to quote a great song. Yes. I'm, I, I may be more a Muppet of a man. I don't know. It's hard to say. I'm a little bit of both. Jason Siegel is one of the creators and uh, stars of the Apple TV Plus series, Shrinking. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks a lot. I had a great time. And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where another manly Muppet, B.J. Lederman, writes our theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about a half an hour, as many U.S. school districts grapple with the lack of teachers, you'll take a look at the forces behind these shortages and consider what can be done about the situation. WBUR supporters include the Jewish Arts Collaborative, bringing Jewish culture to life for us all, in person and online. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. And Bernadine Sung Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s popular PBS show, Finding Your Roots, has connected dozens of celebrities with missing pieces from their past. But what happened when DNA revealed that an actor's racial identity was not what he thought it was? Joe's DNA 
does not match him with anyone related to Emilio Manganello, the man whom he always assumed to be his father's father. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest on tornadoes in Mississippi. Then President Biden in Ottawa. Tennessee's new legislation that restricts drag shows disappoints drag queen Eureka O'Hara, but she's still sweet on her home state. Dolly Parton's from Tennessee. Can't be that bad, can it? (laughs) And there's some great barbecue. And later, job in which you can help your neighbors, risk your life, and not get paid. The shortage of volunteer firefighters Then college basketball, Miami and San Diego State knock off top contenders in the World Baseball Championships finish with a flourish. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, March 25, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Search and rescue operations are ongoing in Mississippi, hit hard by powerful storms last night. Nicholas Fenner is with the National Weather Service in Jackson. He says reports of tornadic activity span more than 100 miles. We have reports of tornado damage from uh, approximately around Merlin Fork, Mississippi, up through uh, Amory, Smithville area in northeast Mississippi. Rolling Fork is the county seat of Sharkey County in western Mississippi. The damage there reported to be extensive. One witness says says the town has been leveled. State police are also warning people to stay away from Silver City, northeast of Jackson. Emergency workers reported to be looking for people who may be trapped. The state emergency management agency says at least 23 people are dead, dozens are injured, and four people are missing. An explosion at a chocolate factory in West Reading, Pennsylvania has killed at least two people. Nine others remain missing. From member station WVLR, Julian Abraham reports on what happened. The R.N. Palmer Chocolate Factory sits in a neighborhood where almost everyone seems to know someone who works there. The company is known for their Easter bunnies with the bright yellow and blue candy eyes. Karen Long lives across the street. She heard and felt the explosion yesterday afternoon. But it was just a tremendous blast, a trem- tremendous shake of the buildings and just debris in the sky everywhere. And I was concerned because normally at this time of the day on a Friday, the children are outside playing. There's lots of traffic going through. Long said she knows several people who work at the factory, but all of them had been accounted for. One building at the factory was destroyed while another was severely damaged by the blast. For NPR News, I'm Julian Abraham in West Reading, Pennsylvania. The Los Angeles Unified School District has reached a tentative agreement with the union that represents school support staff. The agreement settles a contract dispute that shut down the nation's second largest school system for three days this week. Stocks gained ground during a volatile week of trading. The Dow advanced 0.4 percent. And Pierce David Gura reports a Federal Reserve's decision to keep raising interest rates was in line with Wall Street's expectations. Investors recalibrated their expectations of what the Federal 
Federal Reserve will do in the coming months after policymakers opted to raise interest rates again by another quarter point. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said he and his colleagues had considered a pause given the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, but with another hike, they re-emphasized their top priority is getting high inflation under control. Trading of bank shares was volatile all week as Wall Street looked for clarity from government officials about how they'd react if there were more bank runs. Shares of California-based First Republic Bank are still near record lows despite a $30 billion lifeline from nearly a dozen larger lenders. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says it will take more than just Federal Reserve interest rate hikes to tame inflation. The Senate Banking Committee member is accusing corporations of using inflation as an excuse to hike their prices. Warren is calling on the government to hold company executives accountable for any price padding. Sure, the Fed is part of the solution. But so is the Federal Trade Commission. So are state attorneys general. So is the president using his bully pulpit. All of the above. Warren tells WBUR's Radio Boston that the Fed's higher interest rates will lead to more job losses and still not get inflation down to 2%. Massachusetts will enact a stricter set of standards for landlords next month. The state sanitary code updates include a requirement for a pest inspection before a new tenant moves in. Units also must have a working oven, cooktop, refrigerator, and freezer, unless otherwise specified in a lease. Landlords also must be reachable within a 12-hour window. UMass Boston is honoring one of its students who was killed by a Cambridge police officer in January. Last week, the school announced a scholarship in the name of Arif Saeed Faisal. The scholarship will provide tuition support for students with financial need who are interested in public service careers. The school also held a memorial service for him yesterday. In January, a Cambridge police officer fatally shot Faisal while the student seemed to be experiencing a mental health crisis. More disruptions await you on the MBTA this weekend. Free shuttle buses replace red line service between Harvard and JFK UMass. The shuttles will skip Park Street and Downtown Crossing and will stop at the Haymarket and State stations instead. This change will allow the MBTA to switch to a new digital signal system. It is 39 degrees in Boston with some rain around today. A chance of some snow mixing with rain. Highs in the low 40s. Rainy tonight, then tomorrow becoming sunny. A breezy Sunday, highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. A deadly tornado has struck parts of Mississippi and Alabama overnight, tearing through rural communities in a type of storm known as a supercell. Authorities in Mississippi say that dozens of people have died. They expect the death toll to rise. Ross Adams is a reporter with WAPT News in Jackson, Mississippi. Mr. Adams, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Scott. What's the extent of this storm been like? much as you can tell. Well, uh, and, you know, this is a well-worn phrase, but there appears to be massive 
devastation across particularly the, the town of Rolling Fork, the county seat of Sharkey County, which is the second smallest county in the state of Mississippi. That's where the, the majority of the people who lost their lives passed away. I was speaking with yeah. the coroner in that county, and she tells me 13 people died in the town of Rolling Fork. She said practically the whole town is gone. She located six bodies in a trailer park. Another couple, a man and his wife, were found in their home after it was apparently mm. hit by an 18-wheeler. That just gives you a sense of the force of those powerful winds. This may have been an EF3, EF4 massive tornado. The winds are just unbelievable. And of course, this is in the Mississippi Delta, communities surrounded by flatland. So the tornado, those strong winds had nothing to stop them as they were plowing through these small towns. You mentioned uh, um, injuries in a trailer park. Um, I gather there are a lot of mobile homes in the area, and these can be especially vulnerable. Absolutely. That, that is the, the, the one thing that forecasters tell people as soon as there is a threat of severe weather. If you're in a mobile home, they're obviously not sturdy enough to survive uh, the fierce winds of, of, of even an EF1 tornado. So a lot of people would have been uh, trying to get to shelter. Of course, the storm hit after dark on Friday night, so it's unclear how much of a warning these folks had. And again, uh, uh, they have uh, often in these communities uh, these early warning sirens, but if there's a strong wind, if there's a lot of rain, the cell is engulfed in the, in, in the wind, the rain, you can't hear it. So a lot of people may have been caught off guard, may not have had a chance to get to a safe space. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Adams, what, what are the search and rescue efforts like right now? Well, they have actually been going on all night, and we got a, a tweet from MEMA, the Mississippi Department of the, uh, Ma Emergency Management. They tell us that there are dozens of people who are who are injured and at least four people who are missing. So there's going to be an extensive search and rescue, hopefully recovering people who may be trapped in some of the rubble. That, of course, will be going on all day. The sun has risen here, so we'll be getting a full extent to just how extensive the damage is. And obviously people who are missing loved ones, those first responders and searchers will be trying to zero in on where those people were last seen. Yeah. Uh, what sort of reactions have there been from state and county authorities? Obviously, this, this is a heartbreaking uh, situation. Mississippi hasn't seen uh, a deadly tornado like this uh, in, in some time, unfortunately, because we're in Tornado Alley. Yeah. I've covered more than my fair share of tornadoes, but this uh, is going to be uh, a pretty uh, significant, uh, heartbreaking situation. We've had tweets from the governor, the lieutenant governor, expressing their uh, condolences for the communities, for the people who've lost loved ones, and also promising resources, state and federal resources to come in and to assist these folks because it's going to be a long road ahead for the survivors. Ross Adams, who is a reporter with WAPT News in Jackson, Mississippi. Mr. Adams, thanks, uh, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, good luck to everyone there, and, and thanks to you and your colleagues for covering this story. Thank you, Scott. Later today on All Things Considered, TikTok on the Hill. We'll hear from a member of Congress who participated in this week's hearings on the app. 
and national security concerns about it. You can hear that conversation live on this station's website and at npr.org on your radio. Ukraine receives a much-needed lifeline, an agreement for a $15.6 billion loan from the International Monetary Fund. If approved, it will be the first time the IMF loans to a country at war. We turn now to Scheherazade Remen, professor of international finance at George Washington University. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I guess in its entire history, almost 80 years, the IMF hasn't made loans to countries at war. Why do you think they change now? You know, a rule of banking lending is simple. War poses a risk to the lender, including the IMF, and so they have not done that. This rule change was obviously, you know, politically motivated, but also the humanitarian need on the ground is quite severe. They basically said they can now lend, there's a new loan program, for countries facing exceptionally high uncertainty. Now, Ukraine was not mentioned at all in this rule change, but clearly it is targeted for exactly this loan. What is the IMF offering Ukraine? Well, the package is, as you've mentioned, $15.6 billion. And it's coming in in two waves. There's two sides to this. It will eventually be approved by the executive committee of the IMF, and that's a pre-gone conclusion. They would not have made this announcement if it would not have been officially approved. The loan itself is actually for two and a half years, but it will unfold in two stages. The first is a year to year and a half will be devoted to building fiscal, external price and financial stability. Basically, it will focus on something called revenue mobilization. Now, this is a usual thing the IMF does. You know, they tell the country, increase your tax collection, eliminate monetary financing, rely on your own domestic debt markets. Now, this is a little bit of, you know, tongue in cheek because a country at war can't do any of these things. But they also have said in this first tranche of money is that you need to strengthen your governance and anti-corruption framework because some news has been coming out of Ukraine about corruption of the money coming in. All these tools for this first batch is also to help Ukraine into the EU, which is one of the major goals. The second phase of the deal, which will last up to the four-year mark, is really designed to entrench macroeconomic stability, support recovery, and early reconstruction program, while Kiev again tries to achieve the main goal, and that is EU accession. I think you've mentioned a couple, but the IMF is known for attaching conditions. So in this case, the conditions is clean up corruption, improve your governance? Yeah, and increased tax collection. You know, they when they lend money, as you well know, countries are already in trouble and they come with very harsh conditionalities. Everybody is fully cognizant that they're not going to be able to do that, not until this war is over. So this is a, a lifeline for them to help them humanitarily, to help their governance and to keep a government in place with the eventual goal of uh, when things go back to a new normal after the war, they'll anchor their policies in sustainable financial policies and have a gradual economic recovery and promote long-term growth. I mean, the way you describe it, a loan is being offered with conditions that make Ukraine more likely than ever uh, to qualify for EU membership. This is exactly setting them on the path. So when they set up these rules and these uh, new macroeconomic policies and so forth, Basically, they'll be mirroring what the EU will require. Ukraine was already the IMF's third largest borrower before the war. 
What do you foresee for the country's economy when the fighting stops? Well, let me just backtrack a little bit, you know, in terms of the funding, because the IMF's secondary goal here, which is also a big benefit for Ukraine, is first that it's sending the signal that we are supporting the Ukrainian government, right? And secondly, it's this loan is expected to mobilize large-scale financing from other international donors and partners, uh, like the one we just recently had last February when Secretary Yellen made a surprise visit to Ukraine added another $1.2 billion to an already $30 billion gift from the U.S. And that's not counting the military aid, which is about $47 billion just from the United States alone. So there will be continued support. And I believe that, you know, no one can tell how this war is going to end. Obviously, it's going to be a negotiated truce of some kind. But I believe the funding will continue. Do you have any concern that Ukraine can get billions for war that it can't get for recovery? I think if the war drags on, uh, that is a concern. I believe the EU and the US are so committed to making sure that Ukraine succeeds that the funding will continue. The loan has not been non-controversial. I mean, it's we fully understand the Ukrainian need for this relief. But criticism has come in several forms. One that we've heard many times before, there have been many countries at war and during this time, they've never done this. And the size of the loan is huge. And so, you know, the usual criticism is that it's a Western country, unlike a country, say, in South Asia, like Sri Lanka just got a loan, but it had to jump through a lot of hoops yeah. and it took quite a or, while. Or Ethiopia, Eritrea. Correct. Yeah. Correct. This also has to do with political agendas and the voting structure of the IMF. You know, the U.S. is the largest shareholder at 16.5% and everybody else is 6% something and lower. So there's definitely political pressure, especially from the U.S. and the EU, to make all this work and continue to work. So I see more loans ahead. Shahrazad Rimmon, professor of international finance at the George Washington University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. And coming up in about 20 minutes, a fire chief in Accord, New York, discusses the challenges of recruiting volunteer firefighters. Keep in mind, wherever you are, you can stay on top of the news with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. And Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Search and rescue operations are ongoing in Mississippi, hit hard by powerful storms that are believed to have spun off tornadoes. Authorities say the trail of damage spans more than 100 miles and that at least 23 people are dead. Rescuers in Pennsylvania are searching for nine people who remain missing following an explosion at a chocolate factory about an hour northwest of Philadelphia. The explosion happened late yesterday. At least two people are confirmed dead. And former President Donald Trump is holding a rally in Waco, Texas tonight. The rally will be the first of his 2024 presidential campaign and comes as he faces a prospect of a possible indictment by a grand jury in Manhattan. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. President Joe Biden went to Ottawa this week. The president and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a deal on an issue with which they both struggled, how to handle asylum seekers at the U.S.-Canada border. Emma Jacobs joins us from Montreal. Emma, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And please tell us about this agreement. Canada and the U.S. have modified an existing agreement signed after 9-11 under the Safe Third Country Agreement. Both countries could already turn people back who requested asylum at official crossing points along the border. But in what often gets called a loophole, people who made it across the border between official entry points could claim asylum. The change taking effect expands the agreement. So now Canada and the U.S. can turn everyone back to the U.S. or Canada, wherever they arrived first. This was Prime Minister Trudeau speaking yesterday at a press conference with the president. Keeping people safe also includes keeping asylum seekers safe, keeping our borders secure, and keeping our immigration system strong. Both of our countries believe in safe fair and orderly migration, refugee protection, and border security. Mostly Canada wanted this change. This is because since 2017, the vast majority of people crossing irregularly have been headed north at what has become a sort of semi-formalized unofficial border crossing. There's a rural road in upstate New York, Roxham Road, that ends at the border with the province of Quebec, About 40,000 people arrived there in 2022. Trudeau has been under political pressure to stop this. The U.S. will also be able to turn back people it apprehends coming in the other direction from Canada. This does happen, and the numbers have risen a little. Still, they are relatively low. And what will happen to people who get turned back? We've actually had previews of this. The problem is that not everyone has understood the rules. And also during the pandemic, Canada was turning people back at Roxham Road. They'd turn them over to the U.S. border agents. I spoke with people who ended up in U.S. immigration detention facilities. 
The actual numbers of people who got detained or deported were very hard to track. One possible response to this change is that people stop coming to the border. But the other possible impact this change could have is that more people may try to cross in a clandestine way. People that have died elsewhere along the border in the winters, most of them had been trying to reach the U.S. from Canada. Now we could see that happening more to people headed north. Emma, what else came out of this meeting? Relatedly, Canada has committed 15,000 of its refugee resettlement spots to people from the Western Hemisphere. Canada will also speed up deployment of new radar technology that's part of NORAD, the joint Canada-U.S. Aerospace Defense Command. This is the kind of tech that can spot more flying objects, like the ones NORAD pilots shot down over Canada in the U.S. last month. Trudeau also announced about $70 million in U.S. dollars to support the Haitian National Police. Both countries want to see more stability there, but neither government committed to sending their own troops. Emma Jacobs in Montreal, thanks so much. Thank you. Brazil may be back on the world stage. That is at least the hope of President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who pledges to try to reverse his predecessor's isolationist policies. And as NPR South America correspondent Kerry Kahn reports, Lula is headed to China, and that makes some in the West nervous. President Lula highlighted Brazil's political reemergence with a trip last month to the Oval Office. Through an interpreter, he told President Biden Brazil was leaving behind its former leader Jair Bolsonaro's self-marginalization. The former president didn't enjoy to keep international relations with any country. His world started and ended with fake news. He also took a quick jab at the former leader who Lula says spent his days and nights consumed with fake news. Biden joined in, too. Sounds familiar. (laughs) While the two men bonded over defeating far-right opponents and defending democracy at home, there are cracks in the relationship, especially when Lula preaches neutrality and non-alignment. His refusal to strongly condemn Russia's invasion or sell ammunition to Ukraine irks the West, and so does his upcoming trip to China. Oliver Stunkel, an international relations professor at Brazil's FGV University, says Lula is just following foreign policy 101. Never depend too much on one great power. And he says having lots of different, powerful friends gives Lula more room to negotiate when dealing with the giant to the north. The overarching dynamic here is that Brazil wants to tell Washington, look, I got other options which is seen to be the best strategy to extract concessions from Washington. Lula is also proposing being a mediator in the Ukraine war. He wants to create a peace club together with India, something he plans to propose to Xi Jinping. Lula pushed his trip back a day after catching a mild pneumonia on Thursday, but the two leaders do plan to meet on Tuesday in Beijing. It's time for China to get its hands dirty and help try and find peace between Russia and Ukraine, Lula recently told reporters. Thiago Geragon, an international business consultant in Brasilia and Washington, D.C., says the idea of Lula as a peace broker is ridiculous. Brazil is not fit to be a mediator 
in the war in Ukraine. There are dozens of other countries that have more condition to do that. He says Lula should use his international prestige as a defender of the environment and to get China to help fund preservation. Trade talks are more important on this visit to China, he says. About 30% of all Brazilian exports head to China, its number one trading partner. The U.S. is a distant second. And any U.S. criticism of Lula's China visit just ignores those facts, says Rodrigo Zedan, a Brazilian economics professor at NYU in Shanghai. Not everything is about the U.S. He says Lula has to work on repairing ties with China after the beating the relationship took over the past four years under former President Bolsonaro. Echivaldo Gomez hopes Lula can do that. Bolsonaro has done great things, but they have done really wrong things as well. Gomez's family-owned beef and pork business sends 40% of their exports to China. He's one of hundreds of business people, politicians and officials on the trip with Lula. I do believe Lula is doing the right thing. Even though he didn't vote for Lula, Gomez praises him for now putting business over politics. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. Next week, Tennessee will become the first state to criminalize drag performances on public property. The new law aims to limit access to entertainment that appeals to, quote, prurient interests, unquote, by minors. After the bill takes effect on April 1st, people who flout the law could face misdemeanor, even felony charges. Eureka O'Hara is a drag queen from Johnson City, Tennessee. She was to prominence on the ninth and tenth seasons of the hit TV series RuPaul's Drag Race. Watch me smile and watch me say, because I'm living for my true self every day. It's not about your color, gender, or size, but if we come together, we can rise. And Eureka O'Hara currently hosts her own reality show on HBO called We're Here. Eureka O'Hara joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, the honor is ours. What do you think of this bill? Chew it up, spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> like the like the chewing tobacco that uh, the men used to chew um, in Tennessee when I was younger. Um, you know, honestly, the bill is just, it's a little disheartening because drag, which is specific queer art, is very uplifting. So I just think that they are pigeonholing all types of drag into this one negative sexual connotation to instill fear. And, um, you know, we're not trying to harm anybody. We're just trying to be fierce and fabulous and celebrate each other. Do you think you'll be able to keep performing in Tennessee? Obviously, there are nightclubs, right? And that's that's the realm where drag has always existed. But there is drag story hour where people are starting to diversify their children with um, queer books being read by drag queens. There's also, I think in Nashville, there's a bus that drives around where drag queens, you know, give a tour and an exclamation of fierceness to bridesmaids and their bachelorette parties and all these things. They empower women to just feel fabulous and fierce in an environment where they can celebrate themselves with without feeling actually sexualized, which can happen a lot of times in the normal heteronormative nightclub scene. Yeah. What what about the argument that it's it's just responsible to protect minors, young people, 
from uh, sexual references and sexual sexual jokes? I don't know any past history where kids were affected negatively by drag queens performing in public. So the argument that it is trying to censor performance for children. Well, that's the same thing that we're doing at the movies, right? But parents have the right to take their children and choose what movies they allow their children to see. Um, In a diverse world where people are starting to grow and evolve, where we do have the World Wide Web and so many elements that connect these children, they're able to find out who they are much sooner in life and to... Um, distract them from them being able to discover who they are is, I think, the worst harm that you could do more than a drag queen performing in front of one of them. You've said in the past that drag kind of saved your life. Well, yeah, drag did save my life. You know, I was bullied and um, harassed with toxic masculinity my entire life growing up a white, cis male in East Tennessee. And later in life, I discovered I was transgendered, and I'm I'm female. And I transitioned when I was 18, and I was so abused um, mentally, physically, um, sexually. It caused me to detransition and take a step back. I started listening to those voices and those those people that were passing judgment of... You know, you don't know that that's who you really are. You're going to regret it one day. And I finally decided to live authentically as myself again. And I just came out recently again as trans. You know, I still ended up exactly who I knew I was the entire time. What do you think pride parades, which are on public property typically throughout Tennessee, are going to, are going to be able to do or not do with this law? I'm not sure how we're going to make it work, but we will make it work. As soon as I'm invited to a Pride, I'll be there um, loud and proud and in full drag. And maybe I'll make sure that I'm dressed appropriately, in quotation marks, but overtly artistic, um, exaggerated femininity that um, I was beaten down and told I was never allowed to express growing up. But then when I decided to express it through this art form of drag, it opened up a whole new world of uh, a career and family and friends and chosen family when a lot of my family had kicked me to the curb. Ms. O'Hara, what do you what do you think of your home state of Tennessee at the moment? I love where I come from. There's a lot of really amazing things about Tennessee that are now being shadowed by the hatred and discrimination. I always believe in uh, the light overcoming the dark. And this, to me, is a little more darkness than light, although some people might be thinking that they're being protective. With these laws, they're actually (sighs) endorsing more hate than they know. Eureka O'Hara, drag performer, television host, and proud Tennessean. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for just hearing my voice.
And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Many schools across the country have been grappling with teacher shortages. The combination of low pay, a strong economy, bitter politics, and pandemic burnout have not only driven some teachers out of the business, it's also discouraged some new teachers from getting in. And Pierce Corey Turner joins us now. Corey, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Can we call this a national crisis? Well, as with so many things in education, Scott, it really does depend on where you live. According to what limited federal data we have, just under half of public schools had one or more teacher vacancies in October. Obviously, that's after the school year started. To get a ground level view of this problem, uh, producer Lauren Magaki and I, we went to a job fair for new teachers at Mississippi State University. And I just want to play you a little bit of what we heard from all of the school district recruiters who were there. We have a lot of openings. We have a shortage of math teachers. Math and some science. Foreign language, special education. High school English. All of the above. Math and science are our hard to fill areas. So we're looking for a music teacher. We have math and the upper level science areas. A little bit of everything, that's right. So teacher specialty definitely plays a part here. We heard special education, science, and math in very high demand in lots of places. But honestly, teacher pay is still really important and also very low in many places. After you just, for inflation nationwide, teacher pay, Scott, hasn't budged since 1990. The districts that have been hit hardest with these shortages tend to be isolated rural districts or big city districts that serve lots of students of color. Both struggle to compete for teachers with better funded suburban districts. And that's exactly what I saw in Jackson, Mississippi Public Schools, which is where I went after that job fair. And, and what did you hear in Jackson? According to the district, on average, the schools there lose about one in five teachers every year. And that was true even before the pandemic. I actually got sound of one of these vacancies at a high school in Jackson where the principal could not find a qualified Spanish teacher. So I dropped by the classroom where the students are taking Spanish too on their laptops. What just happened? I saw a big red X. <laughs> if you get it wrong, it gives you a chance to try again. How do you like this? Um, I think it's all right. Like, I think it would be better if we actually had a teacher. Oh, my gosh. That's so sad to hear as a parent. Uh, wh what can be done with teacher shortages? Well, the good news is there is a lot that can be done. The question is, is it being done? Many places, including Jackson, are offering hiring bonuses now for folks in hard-to-staff subjects. Also, many states now have or are building what are called grow-your-own programs. This is where aspiring teachers or potential teachers inside these communities can get help paying for a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in exchange for agreeing to stay and teach. And then there are the folks who are already teaching, Scott. Again, better pay is key, but so is better support, especially for teachers in their first few years. And I just want to share as we wrap this up, there is an amazing example of this happening in Alaska right now. It's called the Alaska Statewide Mentor Project. And there, retired veteran teachers actually work full time as mentors, often flying to isolated villages all over the state to help coach and support new teachers. Again, though, the challenge, these programs cost money. And in many places, that money either won't come or it won't keep coming unless lawmakers on both sides of the aisle understand the urgency of the problem. NPR's Corey Turner, thanks so much. 
You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. And here are some travel tips for the weekend in the Boston area. On the MBTA, you'll find a red line disruption. Free shuttle buses replace red line train service between Harvard and JFK UMass. The shuttles are skipping Park Street and Downtown Crossing and will stop at the Haymarket and State stations instead, which are not redline subway stations. This change allows the MBTA to switch to a new digital signal system. If your driving route includes Logan Airport, then allow time for detours. The Sumner Tunnel closed last night at 11 and won't reopen until Monday at 5 a.m. The closure accommodates work crews making upgrades to the aging structure. The weekend repairs on the Sumner Tunnel are set to continue through this spring. It is 40 degrees in Boston with some rain today. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative. Jewish culture is more than matzah balls, and J-Arts is here to explore with you. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club, waterstonelexington.com. And Clark, where chef demonstrations of Wolf Appliances help you compare features and taste the results of ovens, cooktops, ranges, and more. clarkliving.com demo. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you believe, as I do, that journalism is the lifeblood of democracy, then please start a monthly contribution to WBUR. We depend increasingly on you to contribute the funds to keep our journalism strong. So please start your monthly gift now at WBUR.org or by calling 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at subaru.com Solterra. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. About 70% of all fire departments around the country are staffed entirely by volunteers. They answer emergency calls and at times are asked to risk their lives to help keep their communities safe. But since the 1980s, the number of calls has tripled, while the number of volunteers has fallen. Peter Nelson is chief of fire company number one in Accord, New York, about two hours north of Manhattan. And he joins us now. Chief Nelson, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to be here. Is it hard for you to recruit volunteers? It's always a challenge. It's one of the biggest challenges we have. People, I think, don't understand often the commitment of, uh, of time and effort and training that goes into becoming a volunteer. It's not just like you come down to the firehouse, fill an application, and we put you in boots and put you behind the wheel of a truck. It takes a big commitment for uh, any volunteer. How do you persuade people to volunteer? I mean, how do you you say this is an important job? Uh, You might be asked to risk your life for a neighbor or a stranger. Uh, And uh, by the way, it's all volunteer. First of all, it's a very rewarding endeavor. Um, There is 
nothing quite like being able to help one of your neighbors. Um, we also have a, a strong tradition. You know, there, mm -hmm. our firefighters are often fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, cousins. It's a tradition that goes down through families for many years. It fulfills a sort of a space in people's lives, sometimes for students um, in like the local high school that may not fit into the honor society or the mm -hmm. drama club. And they, they can find a home with us, uh, an organization that really appreciates them and will train them and give them discipline and, and, and make them a different part of the community. Chief, what uh, inspired you to volunteer, I gather, 19 years ago? Yeah, I was um, I was unsure, but a neighbor in a neighboring town um, said, you know what, you should go down there and talk to them because they're always looking for members. And um, I found it to be a good fit. And um, I have to say, it's been an incredible experience for me. It's been a life-changing experience for me. When I'm here uh, at home, um, I can respond and I can leave my house, go down to the fire station, pick up an apparatus and respond to some emergency wherever it is. And that's a big need because we're not sitting at the firehouse uh, waiting to slide down a fire pole where people, and one yeah. of the big misunderstandings is that people don't recognize the fact that we are home and we you know, leave our meals and our families and get up in the middle of the night to help people. New York's governor and legislature recently um, approved a 10% property tax exemption for volunteer firefighters. Do you think that will help? I hope so. It's uh, I've been working uh, locally here because although it's a, a law in New York State, each community, each taxing authority has to opt in to accept it. So I think that the combination of all those uh, things are, are really an important tool for us to uh, recruit and retain people uh, mm -hmm. because retention is also a big issue for, for any fire department. Oh, because you 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 want their cumulative experience, don't you? Oh, totally. Yeah, there's a lot of training that goes into training people how to be firefighters. And so that institutional knowledge is crucial to the success uh, of any outcome. You know, we age from 16 years old up to 80 plus. 16 to 80? Yes. Wow. To be clear, you can't go inside a burning building when you're 16 years old. You have to be, you know, 18 to do that. And then... Mm -hmm. um, Every year we have to get a fit test and a physical uh, in order to be qualified to be interior. But we do have members that are 80 plus that, you know, do go to incidents and they do exterior tasks. But but I mean, 18 to 80 is pretty impressive, too. Yeah, it's an interesting culture of people, uh, super dedicated um, to the town that we live. And it's no small endeavor. And um you know, it can be dangerous. It's almost always challenging, but it, it can also be tremendously rewarding. Peter Nelson, volunteer fire chief in uh, Accord, New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And now it's time for sports. March is mad indeed as top seeds fall in a Hollywood ending for the World Baseball Classic. NPR's Tom Goldman joins us. Tom, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. What a night! San Diego oh. State defeated uh, number one ranked Alabama, 71-64. Miami defeated Houston, 89-75. to So, uh, number one seeds are out. We haven't seen every top seed in the tournament out this early in, in what, 40 years? Yeah, a, a crazy night. Overall number one seed Alabama, you know, never really looked as good as that seeding, but they were out-muscled, out-defended, and ultimately outplayed by a fifth seed, San Diego State. Miami and Houston were fairly close through the first half and the start of the second, but the last 12, 13 minutes of the game, Miami pulled away to a comfortable win. And yes, with these two losses on top of a 
earlier losses by number one seeds, Purdue and Kansas. First time since the current seeding system began in 1979 that the Elite Eight won't have a single number one seed. Is, is the seeding system wrong? I don't think so. You know, it's always been an inexact science. There's tremendous parity right now. I mean, the transfer portal system has spread the talent around by allowing athletes to switch teams and start playing immediately. And also the, the NCAA's decision to offer athletes an extra year of eligibility mm -hmm. because of COVID cancellations means some teams have older, more experienced players. You know, we saw this parity throughout the regular season when no truly dominant men's team emerged. And now here we are. It's wide open. You really can make a case for any of the eight men's teams left to win the championship. And Scott, that is March Madness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, women's NCAA basketball tournament. Iowa defeated Colorado last night at 87-77. LSU beat Utah in a real thriller, uh, just three points. Uh, what, what do you expect today with Sweet 16 round wrapping up? Well, I, I want to mention one other Sweet 16 game from yesterday and give a nod to Miami. The Hurricanes qualified for their first ever Elite Eight. They are the masters of the close game. Yesterday they beat Villanova by a whopping five points, their biggest margin of victory so far. They've won, they've won by one two, and five. Those eight total points are the lowest combined margin of victory through three games in the history of the women's tournament. So today should be a lot of great action. Two remaining number one seeds, South Carolina and Virginia Tech, always a dangerous UConn in there too. Mm -hmm. Scott, in all my yakking about March Madness, I haven't taken time to talk about the Hokies of Virginia Tech. Yeah. They deserve some attention, okay? Tom, Tom so, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. We, we, we just ran out of time. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Talk about the Hokies. Oh, wah, wah. Um, the Hokies, a really good, deep team led by players like point guard Georgia Amore, 6'6 uh, star center Elizabeth Kitley, a two-time player of the year in her conference, the ACC. She's an important part of a very good Virginia Tech defense with her shot blocking. She's blocked more shots than anyone in Virginia Tech women's history. Now, as great as they are, they got a tough matchup today against Tennessee as they battle for a Final Four spot. And what a great end in the World Baseball Classic, wasn't it? Oh, my God. Japan oh my God. over the United States. <laughs> Otani pitching to Mike Trout. Wow. A dream, dream ending. A final showdown between two megastars. L.A. Angels teammates going at it. Otani won the showdown, struck out Trout. Japan won its third World Baseball Classic. And all that excitement, Scott, happened during Major League Baseball spring training. Right, and the season, regular seasons, opens opens on Thursday. And, Tom, I have a prediction for you I'm going to make right here, okay? Hit me. The Chicago Cubs yeah? are going to play a lot of games. <laughs> Good one, Scott. NPR's Tom Goldman, thanks so much. You bet. In the picture book, Where Wonder Grows, a woman takes her grandchildren to a special garden where they discover crystal seashells, meteorites, and magical rocks. The book is by two friends, the author, Selena Gonzalez, and the illustrator, Adriana Garcia. It's a funny thing because anytime um, anyone in the industry has asked us what this book is about, 
we say it's about rocks and children's connection to nature and to their grandparents. And I think we feel a little pressed to explain more because we know there's this like elevator speech that's that's required that we should perfect. But anytime we've told kids, when kids ask us, what's your next book about? And we say, it's about rocks. They say, yes. And they'll close their eyes and they're so excited. Like they just get it. Because they're so cool. <laughs> I remember as a kid, like picking up rocks and sand and roly polies and there's like a whole world in the things that we find in nature and so i think that's why the grandmother and the children spread out a purple blanket on the ground the words read this is the place where wonder grows and stories blossom where we gather our magic rocks and relics from nature it is the second book by selena gonzalez and adriana garcia which makes them a great team for our children's book series. Picture this. Here's how they work together. Well, it starts with tacos. <laughs> it starts with food. Oh, yeah, yeah. We get together over tacos, and we usually talk about our lives, and we laugh a lot, and sometimes we walk together. I think in the beginning we started, we would set up a meeting and we would try to get down to business. And it just didn't happen. Yeah, I'd be <laughs> like, what? You're, you know, you're dating this person or, you know, you're moving, you know, those kind of these life events and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so now we know, just get all of that out of the way. Get it out first. Selena Gonzalez says the idea for Where Wonder Grows started while she and Adriana Garcia were on tour for their first book, All Around Us. We went on a on a six week multi state <laughs> road trip <laughs> promoting our book, and along the way, we kept finding these really cool rocks, just finding them in nature, seeing them on the landscape. We stayed with different people, right, at different people's houses, and so we had one where this kid said, uh, "Do you want to come to this rock party?" And it was kind of like a tea party. She had a basket of rocks. <laughs> she like dumped them on the floor, and she started talking about him. And so there was just rocks instead of dolls. We kept meeting with um, mostly young kids, mostly young readers, but also adults who had this fascination with rocks and some sort of really cool activity happening with rocks that we were being invited to observe and participate in. And so we both kind of said like, oh, okay, I think our next book has to be about, about rocks. But Adriana really had these visuals, these, these gorgeous visuals. We just said, okay, well, let's roll with it. Let's let the illustration lead the way this time. They're very colorful. I am a muralist and I like to using really bold colors like pinks and blues and greens and purples. And But I really love using a lot of color. I remember when I was in school being told that I used too much color, which I thought was perplexing. <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, that's what you think. So it's messy, colorful, beautiful pictures of family and rocks, a lot of rocks. <laughs> I think she also does a really exquisite job of combining these very real things. Like you can see this is, this is a rock, this is a garden. These people look like the people in real life, but then there's something really magical that happens. There's this fantasy world that changes from page to page. Like in the beginning, when we're looking at the the volcanic rocks that are put into the sweat lodge. The grandmother is holding the rock and says, you know, she asks us to wonder why this one has so many holes, like secret rooms. 
and you turn the page and essentially the grandmother is holding what looks like a mini volcano, right? And so the rock doesn't actually do that, but they were seeing the children wonder and, and fantasize and imagine. My process is I like to take photographs of people, family members, friends, and then I will print them all out in a contact sheet and then I will look at the ones that I like and sometimes I will cut them up and put them together and and then from that, I use that as a reference when I'm painting. So with this book, I took photographs of Selena's family. <laughs> so I want to add, that was another way that the readers sort of guided this. My daughter is featured in All Around Us with my dad, and it's become such a treasure in our family. So my nieces have always lived next door to us um, here on the west side of San Antonio. We're, we're very, very close. We have a big compound here. So they asked Adriana, they said, can we be in the next book? Will you put us in the next book? <laughs> and so Adriana said, sure. I like to take photographs of friends and family members. Um, one, because I love my friends and family. <laughs> To me, everybody is so beautiful, and I want them to see what I see and how, how beautiful they are. And I really want to show them reflected, the people that I know, people who look like me, reflected in our in children's books and in our media. I think when it comes to Native American heritage, quite often in children's literature, we see Native Americans represented as these like relics from centuries ago and, you know, something that doesn't exist. It's really important to show brown families as they are today, these slice of life stories, families still enduring and still living and still holding true these very simple questions, right? Like, okay, well, we learn in school that a rock is not a living thing. Is that the case, right? Is there something deeper here? I remember studying about the um, hundreds of languages that existed in what we now call, you know, the Americas, and how of the vast majority of them, more than 70% of them did not have a distinct word for human being versus a plant being or an animal being. That alone, like the power of words and linguistics, like, is amazing how that can affect the way one views the world. And I think, I don't know that anyone would argue with the fact that we have an unhealthy relationship with our environment right now. And so we can reimagine something else, a different relationship with nature and seeing ourselves as a part of it. And you don't have to be a brown child or a Native American child to see that. Anyone can see that at any age. Selena Gonzalez and Adriana Garcia talking about their book for children, where Wonder Grows. Our series, Picture This, is produced by Samantha Balaban. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
It is 40 degrees in Boston with some rain around today. Next at 10 o'clock, wait, wait, don't tell me, here on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. And the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, presenting a talk with Dr. Larry Brilliant, who helped end smallpox as a hippie doctor and whose visionary ideas have changed the world. Free to the public. Memorial Church in Cambridge on March 29th at 4. Details at wcfia.harvard.edu. Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s popular PBS show, Finding Your Roots, has connected dozens of celebrities with missing pieces from their past. But what happened when DNA revealed that an actor's racial identity was not what he thought it was? Joe's DNA does not match him with anyone related to Emilio Manganiello, the man whom he always assumed to be his father's father. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.